Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Discipleship Podcast, where we record conversations, lectures, and seminars that explore discipleship topics and issues designed to help you on your journey in finding total attachment to Jesus. I'm Tim. I'm the Community Life Pastor here at Sardis Fellowship, which is located in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. And in this episode, we'll be hearing from Dr. Ross Hastings from a presentation given on Sunday, January 29th, 2023 in the evening on the topic of sex, singleness, and marriage, the journey towards wholeness. During the Q&A, you won't hear the questions, but I hope you can still piece together the gist of the questions and find value in the answers given. For more information about our church, visit sardisfellowship.com. Thanks for tuning in and hope you enjoy. Um, Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. I appreciate the fact that you want to learn and grow and know more. Um, the spirit of this evening is one of humility, is one of learning, is one of seeking God uh, for his truth and also for his love. And I don't know what's brought you here tonight. Everyone has their own stories around these issues, whether it's personal, because as I said this morning, each and every one of us struggle with our sexuality and to understand how that aligns with God and his holiness. But it also could be that you are in the situations where Um, You're encountering people in your life who are choosing these paths that don't seem to line up with God's created order and design, as we were looking at this morning. And, uh, or maybe you are that person. And I want to, again, reiterate what I said at the end of the service. We want this to be a safe place, a place where you can ask your questions, a place where you can explore, explore God's truth and journey with him on the journey that you're on and the journey that we are on collectively. Um, I also want it to be uh, an opportunity, I think by nature of having the paper and pen, um, it's maybe easier to ask the honest question that you have, so please ask it. Um, Whether or not we have a satisfactory answer, that I don't know. We'll pray for Ross and God's wisdom for him. Um, But we do want you to ask your questions, and so we're budgeting a fair amount of time for that. And then, of course, when it's over, if you want to personally engage with Ross, he might be a bit tired, but nonetheless, we'll hang out for a bit. He just looked at me with very big eyes. That's what he gets paid for, his wife says. That's a good way. So I I hope with that spirit you can understand how we're approaching this. Um, As a pastor in this congregation, um, I wanted to help our congregation be able to grapple with these things because we're living through these times that we all have questions about. And so that's what this is designed to do to the best of our ability. We want to make sure it's done in love. And so I hope that that reflects the spirit that you've come with as well tonight. Um, I'd like to open in prayer, and then Ross, I'll turn it over to you. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather in this way. I would pray that by your spirit, you would guide Ross with the teaching of your word and also guide us with our ears to hear and our minds to understand. Lord, might we each take a step closer to you and what it is that you have for us. That's what we desire. So guide us to that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ross. And maybe a a round of applause. I appreciate you coming out and giving us your time on this weekend, Ross. Thanks, Ross. Bless you. Yes, I want to begin by reading a passage of scripture that may seem very strange to you. Um, I've been reading through Ezekiel in my my, uh, daily readings. Um, Towards the end of the book of Ezekiel, it's very challenging. It's, you know, if you're an architect or a builder, you can appreciate all the um, measurements about the temple and and how many cubits wide and high and all that kind of stuff. For me, I'm going, ooh, okay, whatever. Um, On to the next chapter. Chapter 47 comes out of the blue. It's as if uh, God has indicated how the temple should look 
Um, but it's a lot like the two other accounts of temple and tabernacle in the Old Testament when the glory falls, the Shekinah glory falls. Uh, and until that happens, the temple's just a building. But once the Shekinah glory falls, then it takes on a whole different perspective. And the reason I want to read this passage to you is to reiterate what I said this morning, that the, the greatest key I know to help us understand our sexuality, put it in its proper perspective, overcome whatever particular disorderedness we struggle with, the greatest key to that is to put roots deep into uh, the life of God. It's knowing God, and it's being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, sometimes uh, some theologians have said that we have core desires, and we have critical desires, and we have casual desires. So casual desires would be whether I like pink ice cream or chocolate ice cream. Critical desires are, are more important. Um, but core desire is th there's only one person who can actually satisfy our core desires, and that's the living God. And once we allow him and spend our lives in spiritual practices pursuing intimacy with him, then we find the ability to keep our critical desires in their right place. And I would say sexual desires is in that realm. Critical desires, we can't ignore them. We've been created to be sexed beings. We're male and female and in accordance with God's creation of us. But when we don't satisfy our core desires in the living God, then we try to find satisfaction in the, that area of the critical desires. And we, and we begin to be very prone to trying um, to find in perhaps a marriage partner, perhaps a friend, uh, perhaps some sexual practice that will try to bring the satisfaction that only God can bring, because he alone is the one who can satisfy our core desires. So I wanted to begin with this passage in, in, in Ezekiel uh, 47 which describes a beautiful image of what it means to increasingly be immersed in the life of the Spirit, in the life of God. Uh, so the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Interesting, relationship between the altar and the water. It's kind of like Jesus saying in John chapter 7, um, or John says, the Spirit had not yet been given because Christ was not yet exalted. Once he's been to the altar, then there can be Pentecost. And in our own lives, once we go to the altar and find Christ and find our salvation, then uh, we can also uh, know we, we receive the Holy Spirit at our conversion and we can live life in the Spirit. And so here it says, the water was coming out from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out from the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling. It was trickling from the south side. And as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through the water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough, deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Uh, there's something expressive about this that I think um, at certain stages of our Christian life, we are kind of ankle deep in our experience of God. 
And our, the invitation is to grow and find that our experience of God has moved to being knee-deep and then to the waist, and then we find that there are oceans to swim in with regard to God. Um, you know, I said to myself, just be relaxed about this lecture tonight. No getting excited, and here I'm getting excited already. Um, and uh, who wouldn't get excited about the notion of a living life in the Spirit, uh, living our lives deeply into the presence of Christ. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is what we're all about. So let me pray as we look at this important topic tonight. Father, thank you for the gracious gift you've given us of your precious son, Jesus. Thank you for uh, all that he is. Thank you for all that he is for us. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who's been given to us as your people. And we ask that in the midst of all our struggles to recover from brokenness, in the midst of our struggles to keep right priorities and to satisfy our core desires in you, that you'll enable us by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, for each person who's come tonight that you will minister to them, uh, that you'll encourage them, that you'll lift them up, and that you'll guide them as we try to make our way through some of these uh, very difficult issues in our time. We look to you for grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I really believe it's important for the church to talk about sex, sexness, all of these issues, uh, because our children and our young people are being talked at all the time about these issues in our schools, in our universities. So I really uh, honor you, Rod, and your, your leadership team that you're willing to talk about these things. It's really, really, really commendable. Um, the second thing I want to tell you is, you know, before I talk to you in detail about some of these sexual issues, is I'm probably the least qualified. You know, I'm a theologian. I love to study God. I love to study the Trinity. I love to study Christology. I love to study the, the work of the Holy Spirit. I love to, that's, a, that's what I do for a living. Um, I never thought I'd be talking to people about sex. But you know what? The most important issue theologically of our time is what does it mean to be human? That's the most important theological issue of our time. So that's why I'm not afraid to talk about this, although I do so with some temerity. I mean, I had no sex education growing up. I'm going to tell you a story about my dad. So my dad... Um, this was the limit of my sexual education. He was Scottish, and so I think that makes you somewhat prone not to talking about these things in, in real life. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, one day, he pushed my brother and I into the washroom, and uh, he, he said in his Scottish accent, if you boys see anyone playing with number one, you steer clear of them. I had no idea what he was talking about. Was this about masturbation? Was this about mutual masturbation? Was it about seeing other boys? I had no idea. And that was it. He left the room. And uh, I think he felt good that he'd done his sex ed. Um, so that's why I say I am the least qualified uh, to talk to you, uh, given the, the lack of sex education uh, that I had. Um, but by God's grace, um, I've tried to reflect theologically on sex. That's, that's primarily what I do. I'm not a sex expert. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, the person who's the guru on sex. 
but God has given me, I think, uh, an, a capacity to reflect theologically on what sex is, and that's one of the core issues of being human is our sexness. So I want to, I want to do that with you um, tonight. In just a moment, I'm going to talk to you about one of the core theological ways that we think about sex. I introduced it this morning, and I want to say more about it. But I, I want to I begin by saying, first of all, sex is a gift from God. Do you know when God pronounced, when God created the, the cosmos and then he, he uh, created at the very center of the temple of the creation, he created human beings, right? And what did he say at the end of that? It was all good. In fact, when he created humanity, he said it was very good. Did he mean that kind of the sex organs part? That's not so good, but everything else is good. No. Every aspect of the being of, a, of being human is good, including our sexuality. And we shouldn't forget that, that it's a gift, right? The practice of it, as I said this morning, is limited to covenantal marriage. But being sexed is not something you can help. And whether we're single or married, we're gifted with being sexed. Uh, that is, we are either male or female, uh, and, uh, unless there are particular challenges related to intersex or whatever. But that, um, and, and, and that sex drive given to all of us was intended first to drive us towards God in contemplation and secondly to drive us towards one another in community. That was the purpose of it. As I mentioned this morning, you know, Jesus never had sex, yet he was the perfect human being, the fully fulfilled human being, the one we want to be like. So we've got to... You be very careful about saying that sex is a human right, for example, uh, when, it, when it really isn't. Um, so on the one hand, I want to say sex is a gift given to all of, all of us to be appropriately processed. On the other hand, we are all fallen. At the end of, uh, uh, after Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3, when there's a fall. And it's not surprising to me that we have so many issues around sex in our time, and indeed there have always been issues around it. We're not, we're not, this is not the first age when we've had problems with sexuality. And I'm not surprised because um, when God creates a human being, he makes the human being male and female. Maleness and femaleness is at, is at the very core of what it means to be human. Maleness and femaleness is at the core of what it means to be made in the image of God. So if there's a fall, you can bet your bottom dollar that maleness and femaleness and the whole sex issue is going to be a crucial issue for us. It's, it's the point at which um, we are, as I said this morning, every single one of us are broken in some kind of a way. And so we embrace, uh, you know, all of us need, need, need to feel that God, God, no matter how broken we may feel, that God loves us and uh, he's interested in our lives in ways that are, are very significant. And so we need, because we're broken, we need redemption. And redemption comes, I think, in two different ways. First of all, our redemption comes from satisfying our core desires in the living God and not trying to satisfy our core desires in our spouse or in our friends. Uh, they are for our critical desires, not our core desires. And so when, you, when we try to satisfy uh, all of our needs in our particular spouse or our friends, we're going to run into difficulty. 
um, we're going to be thirsty people. And uh, the psalm we read this morning uh, talked all about satisfying our thirst in the living God. Uh, We are all thirsty people, and uh, we need to come afresh. Uh, We need to, um, you know, take the steps into the water, ankle deep, knee deep, chest deep, swim in the life of God. And I believe that will help us a tremendous amount recovering from whatever challenges we face uh, in our lives. Uh, If anyone is thirsty, let them come unto me and drink, said Jesus. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being, out of her innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. Our lives are meant to be um, overflowing uh, like that. You know, when I read rivers of living water flowing from us, I'm very much reminded of who God is. God in eternity past has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perfect communion with one another, each in the other and mutual, in, uh, they're mutually internal to one another, joying in one another. And the decision of the Godhead to create was a spilling over like a rivers, like rivers of living water. God created out of the richness um, of his love and, out of the rich, and, 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 and according to his will, you know, one theologian, Athanasius, early on in the church said, let's be very careful what we say about creation. God did not create creation out of his being. He created it according to his will. That is, there's a distinction between creation and God that we must observe. And so God creates, and he creates something beautiful, something wonderful, the cosmos. And then there's the fall. And if God is the God who created, he also knows how to bring us from the fall. Um, I don't believe myself for a moment that God was taken by surprise by the fall because we read that the Son of God was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew what was going to happen, and he knew that the coming of his Son, his incarnate Son, and his going to the cross was always the plan, and that he, redeemed, he redeems his people, and, and he helps us begin to be on the journey towards recovery. We're all in recovery in some way or another, recovery from our brokenness. But how does that journey happen? It happens, and this is the second, I said there's two great dynamics that will help us recover from our brokenness. First is um, satisfying our core thirst in the living God and communion with him. The second is similar to it. Um, When Paul writes in his epistles about how we change, He always talks about our change being a result of being in union with Christ, being in Christ. In Christ is the most important phrase in the whole New Testament. And if you're in Christ, it means you're ensconced in him, you're one with him. And whatever happened to Jesus Christ here on earth when he lived and died and rose again, that happened to you because you're in him. And so when he comes to talking about change, he'll talk about two things how you have died with Christ, and how you are made alive with Christ. And so I want to say that that for all of us, before we even encounter all of the challenges, and I try to deal with some of the difficult issues of our time, to know this, there's always hope. And our hope as Christians is living into the death of Christ, mortifying the deeds of the flesh, putting to death those things that are not good in our lives, and being vivified, being made alive in the risen Christ, Um, And of course, Christ has done this for us, but it doesn't mean to say we don't have to do anything. 
Uh, Dallas Willard, the great spiritual theologian, said, grace is never opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. It takes effort to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It it takes effort to put on the graces of the Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit. But our effort is in His effort. Paul says it clearly in in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like it all depends on me. But then he says, for it is God who is at work in you. The only reason we can work towards growth and change is that God is already in a prior way at work in you. That's encouraging um, because um, apart from that, uh, we have no, no hope. And so there are spiritual disciplines and practices that help us to appropriate all that Christ has done for us. Um, so uh, those are uh, just some things by way of introduction, even before we encounter the stuff that uh, is challenging for us. Um, Right, now to the lecture proper. Um, I want to talk about, first of all, something that evangelicals are not good at. Evangelicals are not good at discussing being. We're good at discussing how we know things. We're good at discussing doing things, but we're not good at discussing being So the reason that you and I are sexed beings is because of our being, and our being is linked to the Creator who made us. So on my first slide, it's a slide I, uh, yeah, you saw this this morning, for those of you who are here, Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, persons who are equal but differentiated, and then at the bottom here, um, God creates us in his image. We are human image bearers, persons who are, guess what? Equal but differentiated. Differentiated in one profound way, our sexness, being male and female. Um, let me put it this way. What we tend to do as evangelicals when we, we are encountering an issue, like all the sexual issues, is we go to the Bible. And I'm all for going to the Bible. Don't get me wrong. But you need to, so, and, and so the Bible seems clear on, on, on a number of issues, and, and despite the fact that there are certain people who are trying to make, make the Bible say things that do, it doesn't say, um, as I said this morning, my biggest concern is why does God say what he says? So, for example, if um, people may not be able to help the fact that they're same-sex attracted, but they can help the fact, they can help, um, what they do with that and, and what their actions are. And the Old Testament and New Testament are both in agreement that set the same-sex act is disordered precisely because it doesn't reflect um, a God who is differentiated. Um, and the fact that the church, the church and Christ are also uh, meant to teach us something about who we are. Do you see what I'm saying? Being, the being of God is where we begin. And um, whereas I'm convinced, I'm not a revisionist. In other words, I'm not going to go back to the Old Testament and say, well, that didn't really mean homosexuality in Leviticus. And uh, those words that are used in Romans chapter 2 and those words that are used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they don't really mean homosexual relations. They mean something else. That's called revisionism. And I want to say, you know, I study those passages till I'm blue in the face. And it seems to me that the plain sense of Scripture is the plain sense of Scripture. Whatever Scripture says in that context is pretty clear. I'm not a revisionist. But that's not enough for me. The question I ask is, why is it that God might be against same-sex uh, relations? And why is it that sex is preserved uh, for people who are not same-sex, people of... of, of uh, 
opposite sex, that the sex act is preserved for covenantal marriage. We're like, why is that? That seems to us so narrow. It's so old school, right? But um, it, is, it really is old school. It's as old as theology. It's as old as the Christian scriptures. And it's as old as the doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity, my friends, is not just this doctrinal thing that we you know, profess by saying a creed or whatever. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity is the center, the circumference, and the architectonic or the structure of all of Christian theology. It's the very heart of who we are as God's people. And so as those who um, think about the why, we must go to the question of being and so we have these, um, uh, we have this this great correspondence um, between God and who we are. It's a correspondence. It's not exactly right. You know, God is three in person, and each of those persons is completely in the other. Remember, Jesus said, "I am in my Father, and my Father is in me." Well, do you know what? We can never be exactly like that. My wife is sitting here in the front row. And um, I have a wonderful interdependent relationship with her, but I'm not in her. And if I try to predict what Tammy might say about a particular issue or what she's going to do on any particular day, I usually get it wrong because I'm not mutually internal to her. I'm mutually interdependent with her. But my point is simply this, that, um, yeah, so God is, God is transcendent. He is supreme. Um, you know, how can the Father and the Son be completely in each other and still be the Father and the Son? That's mysterious, isn't it? But that's the truth of the Trinity. The truth of the Trinity is that at the center of all of the cosmos, there is a relationship. You ever thought about that? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship. That affects our whole theology, how we think about, how we think about God. Um, so... Um, Yeah, so I want to I want to I want to move on and 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 still on the subject of being. Uh, this this you saw this morning. I want to go to this one. Imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin word. It just means image of God. So let's take away the mystery. It's the image of God. And uh, Genesis one twenty seven is the great passage on the image of God. Of course, there is also a reference to the image of God in the New Testament twice. And I don't know if you remember who it refers to both times. Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus fulfills all that the first Adam couldn't. He is the perfect man. And uh, so, so we're so grateful for him. But I, I, need to, I need to say to you that we need to understand who we are as humans. I said to you a moment ago, the most important theological issue of our time is who are we? What are we as human beings? Are we just individuals, autonomous individuals? who can decide when we want to die, or who can decide what it is that we want to do in terms of, uh, in, in terms of our sexuality. Who's going to tell me what to do, right? Oh, that kind of attitude. Or are we, in fact, um, as image bearers, reflecting the communal nature of God in our sexuality, in our being sexed, and in our communities uh, with one another? So um, here is a the, the doctrine of the image of God is, uh, it really has three components. Um, it has a composite meaning. It's, 
So Genesis 127 says, uh, in the image of God, he created them. And then it says, male and female, he created them. All right, so I want to say that first and most important aspect of the image of God that has a huge bearing on sexuality is this first one, relational, personal. Um, that is, that we are built for a relationship with God and that as human persons who are male and female, we are built to go out of ourselves towards the other in a general way. G Genesis chapter 1 says nothing about marriage. It, uh, it can be taken as either for singles or for married people. We are all created in the image of God. We are, birthed to be, we are, we are born to be relational. Here's the interesting thing. From the moment you're conceived, you're already a relational being. You have a relationship with your mother. And when you are birthed, you're usually in relationship with a mother and a father. And then you're in a relationship with your siblings. And then you're in relationship with your classmates. And then you have relationship, especially in the church. Do you see how relational we are? That's a sign. That's a sacrament of the God. We are made in the image of God. But folks, it's not just relations. It's not just that we're built to be communal. We're also built to be persons in relations. Right? So we are not, we're not individualists, and nor are we collectivist. We are in the middle. We are persons in relation. The word individual is my most, I don't know, I hate the word individual. It is not a theological or biblical term. Individual is something that was really emphasized in the Enlightenment with people like Immanuel Kant and others who said, I, and uh, Rene Descartes who said, I think. Therefore, I am, as I said this morning, not quite true. We, uh, we, uh, we are because we belong. I belong, therefore, I am. I belong to God first, and I belong to the community I'm in. That's a better definition for who we are. And so we have this first uh, understanding of the image of God is that we are relational and personal. You know what's really interesting is we don't try and be the image of God. God pronounced over the first human beings, you are my image. He's imaging himself in us. It comes from God. And what does he do? Just like he is three persons who are completely equal, and in one communion, we too are made to reflect him because we are equal as male and female, but we are made, male and female, differentiated just like him. You know, it's interesting, the um, Eastern Orthodox theologians use the word synousia, to describe sexual intercourse and marriage. And it, it means consubstantial. It's exactly the same word that they use for the consubstantial nature of the Trinity. So that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all in one, they are all part of one substance, one essence, one communion. And, um, and, and when in marriage uh, there is the sexual relationship, it's synousia, it's a, it's a reflection of the union of the Trinity. They're very aware of that in Eastern Orthodox tradition. We can learn a lot from them. Um, but what I want to try to stress, apart from even marriage, is that whether you're married or not, you're made in the image of God, and as a male person and a female person, you are sexed, and uh, you have been given by God a drive. Our, our sex has been given to us so that we will come out of ourselves towards the other, towards, first of all, the significant other who is God, and then the other, uh, which is our human others. Now, let me quickly move to the second aspect, aspect of the Imago Dei. 
which is ontological. I, I, I apologize for the big word. Ontological just means being, according to being. Um, why are we different from animals? Because we are in the image of God and they're not. That's not to say they don't have echoes of the image of God. I mean, I, I had a wonderful Border Collie dog who seemed to me to be very human. Um, but at the end of the day, my Border Collie didn't sit and look in the mirror and say, I wonder what kind of day I'm going to have today. I wonder how I'm feeling about this lecture today that I'm going to give. They, they can't do that. That's self-reflection. That's only humans that can, get, can do that. And it's our brain capacity. In other words, it's part of it. It's our, our capacity for reason. Um, that's also part of it. Part of it. I want you to notice this. Part of it. Um, because here's the thing. The relational personal piece is the number one thing. And if you, if you make the reason or the self-reflection piece the number one thing, uh, then we could perhaps be guilty of looking at somebody who's got uh, some kind of disorder uh, mentally or physically, and because they don't have a high IQ, we could say they're not made in the image of God. Right? And that's precisely what happened with Hitler. Uh, and the useless mouths. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's not acceptable. So our intelligence does say something, but one, 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 one should be very careful to make the priority in thinking about the image of God, our relationality, um, because I found often people who struggle, especially with, with, uh, um, with being uh, mentally disabled, that they're the most affectionate people ever. I used to work in a church where we had the Joy Fellowship people in our, in our basement. I could never get to the washroom without hugging 15 people because they're so full of hugs. So the relational piece is there, even though perhaps their IQ was not as much as, uh, as, 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 as might be desired for other people. Uh, it's not the primary thing, but it is a thing. And the third thing, the third thing is really important as well, which is you know, God no, no, no sooner says, you're in my image, then he tells them, I want you to go and care and rule over my creation. And I want you to work. Um, and in chapter 4 of Genesis, we find four different types of workers, um, all commissioned by God. Um, so this, this third piece is, 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 is really very important as well. And I, I really think it's important that we know how, that our work matters to God. And it's not just when we're in church that we're doing God's will. And it's not just the pastor who does God's will. It's all of us in our workplaces who are fulfilling the mission of God, uh, fulfilling the cultural mandate, as it's sometimes called, to care for creation and to, to, um, to steward it well uh, as we go about our, our work. So... Um, yeah, so just to stress that this whole idea of male and female created he them is part of the first dimension, relational, personal. It's not by accident that we're male and female differentiated and yet equal. Uh, that's, I think that's the, that's the thing I, I, really, I really wanted to stress uh, first in this, um, this part of the talk. Um, Another way to say this is that how God has made us a male and female is that we have been given other-orienting energy. We're not meant to sort of get into a little hole and be by ourselves. It's destructive. We're invited, and I do recognize that there are some introverts here and some extroverts here, and we, we all differ in those ways, but all of us, even introverts, are called to be in relationship, and our healing 
uh, is so much, uh, so much of our healing is, is related to that. Um, now, just one more thing about, about the image of God. Um, the image of God, uh, I was listening to a, a woman lecture in uh, St. Andrews um, a number of years ago, Krista McCurland, and she says we, it's really important to distinguish between two aspects of the image of God. And she said, on the one hand, it's non-degreed. What does she mean by that? Well, what she meant by that is in Genesis 9, we have people who have already fallen, and yet they're still in the image of God. And then what she said is that every single human being alive today, or who's ever lived, was made in the image of God. And that's crucial. Do you know, one of the things I shake my head at is that we have so many Western governments who are so uh, certain about the doctrine of human rights and human rights, you know, human rights. We're all about human rights in Canada, right? I'm all about human rights too. But those politicians are living on borrowed capital. Where did the concept of human rights come from? From the Christian church, from this particular text, which says that every human being is made in the image of God. No matter how sinful, no matter how broken, every single person is made in the image of God and therefore must be considered with dignity and value. And that shapes um, how we think about every human being um, in, 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 our, in our lives. So just simply stress that uh, the, the degreed, so this is the non-degreed reality for all human persons based on the creation, uh, their creation by God. And, uh, but there's also a degreed nature when people um, come to faith in Christ, as many of you have come to faith in Christ, you're regenerated. You now have the capacity by grace in union with Christ to grow in fullness into the image of God, one degree of glory to another, as Paul puts it. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. That's imago right there. That's image of God right there. Oriented towards God, other-oriented. We all with unveiled face beholding as on a glass the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to another even as by the Lord uh, who is the Spirit. All right. Now, in light of all that, I want to, you know this morning I said to you, th these are the narratives of our culture. I don't know if you remember that part of my, of my, uh, my sermon this morning. We talked about uh, the narratives of our culture. And then I said, tonight, I will pronounce the narratives of the Christian faith around all these issues. So that's what I'm going to do um, in, the, in the next few moments. Ross, how much yeah. time do you need for that? Um, uh, probably five minutes. Okay, well, yeah. that's good. Yeah, no good. And then we'll, we'll, we'll have a break. Yeah, that's good. Um, I have a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, we'll see how the questions go. But I have, I have questions addressing specific issues, such as same-sex such as, um, uh, yeah, all of, all of the pornography, all of those things that, ch that I want to get to maybe after. They'll probably come up in the questions. Yes, I'm, they, they may come up, and that'll be, that'll be fine. All right, so here we go. Um, remember I said, he, I said the first one was my, my body belongs to me, and nobody can tell me what, what to do with it, right? And to which we respond, my body belongs first to God and is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I'm responsible to use it with accountability to my ecclesial and human community. Ecclesial just simply means my church community. 
For I am a person in relation, and my sexual impulses are given that I might seek to satisfy them in contemplation of God and in community with friends. So that's the first narrative. Second narrative, the act of sex embodies a surrender of the person which comes from belonging to the other person by covenant relationship. Number three, we do not so much have a body as we are a body that's animated by the soul. And so the act of sex is between two persons who are in covenant relationship, and it has a lasting physical, emotional, and spiritual meaning. So this kind of cuts across the idea that I can have casual sex, nobody, nobody gets hurt, um, and it's kind of a very positive, it's kind of a large narrative in our culture, and I'm saying, I I'm sorry, but yeah, Paul says that when you have sex with somebody else, you become one with that person, right? And so casual sex isn't casual sex. It never is. It's emotional entanglement. Four, the idea that sex before marriage between two people who love each other and who live together is wrong is indeed old school, is gladly acknowledged to be old school, for it is as old as the creation of humanity by God and God's institution of marriage. This has always involved a holistic leaving of the original family, a covenantal and public cleaving to each other before there was a joining of two bodies as the climax of the marriage act. Next one, marriage is between a man and a woman who alone can actually reflect the notion of union between sexually differentiated persons that mirrors the church and the triune God. Next one, marriage is a lasting covenant, not a contract, and each partner in the union comes into the union to die with Christ to self as modeled by and in participation with the sacrifice of Christ for his church, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and to live in mutual submission to the other. Another one, the exceptions that may legitimate divorce are adultery, abuse, and neglect. I can say more about that. People, even children, do not have the right to choose their own gender, as if gender is something disembodied, since sexness is actually an embodied reality that must be given priority over gender identity, although compassion must be extended towards people with gender dysphoria as a result of compromised physical and hormonal complexities or emotional trauma, and especially those uh, who have experienced intersex in their birth. Next one, in light of the above, with the exception of intersex, persons for whom the wrong sex was chosen by doctors or parents, transgenderism, despite that, transgenderism should be, by and large, discouraged. Um, research shows that the psychological angst that, that accompanies gender dysphoria is not greatly relieved by sex change surgery. Former John, Johns Hopkins chief psychiatrist Paul McHugh commenting on a study of over 300 people who completed sex reassignment surgery in Sweden over a 50-year 50 50 -year period, which reported high levels um, of satisfaction and low levels of regret, but also considered, considered, were considerably higher risks for mortality, suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. So... Um, 
So generally, uh, transgenderism uh, should be discouraged. There are, there are occasions when it, it may be the right thing, and one needs great sensitivity to work with doctors and uh, with the, uh, those in the psychological pr profession and pastors and so on. Um, I'm almost at the end of this list, that certain persons have desires or orientation, we may say, towards someone of the same sex does not mean, so one, one is sympathetic. We have, a, uh, we have a professor who comes to teach um, at Regent every summer, and uh, his name is Wesley Hill. He's written good books, and I know there are a number of other resources that Rod wants to mention. Um, he, he knows he has same-sex desires, but he's committed himself to a life of celibacy and is healthy in that sense, uh, emotionally and spiritually. Um, so one must be sympathetic towards, who have, towards those who have their desires, but that certain per persons have desires towards someone of the same sex does not mean they're permitted by God to act out their desires in the same-sex sex act, since human desires are not a reliable guide for morality. Second last one, there is a distinction to be made between same-sex attraction and same-sex acts just as there is a distinction between opposite-sex attracted persons who can abstain from acting out their attraction um, and still be healthy singles through contemplation and community, and just as there is a distinction between the attraction of a married person to someone outside of their marriage uh, to a person of opposite sex. And lastly, hospitality in a biblical sense is different to postmodern alterity. I spoke about that this morning um, because... Uh, hospitality for me in the context of all of these struggles means that we must be welcoming no matter where people are at be welcoming at the same time we cannot I think as the church apologize for bringing all people to Christ and to all of the repentance all of the um, lifestyles that are involved in that and in the case of same-sex attracted people towards celibacy and so on so um, I think that will that will do for now, and uh, I think we'll have a break. Um, take a break for five minutes or yeah, so. Yeah, I'll get some instructions. Great. All right. Thank you, Ross, very much. Um, what we're going to do is uh, in the next, say, five to seven, eight minutes, if you want more coffee, you can get that or use the washroom. But we, up front here, we have this little metal uh, tin where we're just inviting you to put your questions in there. And then I'm going to take a few minutes to try to correlate them quickly and just see if there's some um, that go together by way of themes. So if you could take a minute and write out your question, and, uh, and then after the break, we'll come back and we'll do the Q&A. We'll read the questions and then um, see the answers, and we'll see where we're at for time. Make sense? All right. Go ahead, take your break. Please turn in your question. If you didn't get the papers, we got them up here. There's also some books I have on the table if you want to check those out for resources. The cure for compulsive masturbation is to move out of yourself, like I said, towards the other. Start finding yourself in community. Be in relationships. Um, it's aloneness that often leads to the unhealthy use of, of masturbation. Um, yeah, and one final word on it. Uh, Richard Foster, the great spiritual theologian, said, silence on this is no counsel, and repression is bad counsel. What he was trying to say is, if you're a parent, talk to your kids about it, and don't do what my dad did, and take me into the washroom and tell me not to play with number one. So that's really unhelpful. So let me, I, I, I forgot to actually ask the first question. Let me ask the second question, that is, um, so this one relates to what's the cause of the same-sex attraction sure. in people? Are you born with it? Are you born with it? 
Um, and secondly, is it possible for that attraction to be removed and for a person um, to go through what sometimes called change therapy um, and, and so on? And then is there a possibility of a person who's same-sex attracted perhaps admitting that but continuing into a, a heterosexual uh, marriage? Yeah, those are big questions. To the first one, I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows yet. You know, even if it's genetic, I want to say to me that doesn't change my opinion in terms of the act, right? Um, it's probably, um, it seems to me that there are certain um, dynamics at home uh, sometimes that can affect um, the development of same-sex attraction, uh, but we, we just don't know um, whether it's nature or nurture. And, um, and so until we know, I, I can't make any, I don't know for sure. I, I'll just be honest about that. And I don't think anybody else knows yet. Um, second, can there be change? I believe in the possibility of change. I can also say realistically, it's, it's very rare. And I mean, I've known spiritual leaders who said they had been they'd overcome the same-sex attraction and then they fell back into the lifestyle. So I, I'm not particularly, um, it's, is it possible? Yes. Um, this is one major point of conflict with Christian churches and our current government. Um, the idea that people might be able to, to go through a, a psychological change and that, that they could be healed perhaps of a same-sex attraction. Um, I want to say on the one hand, I think the Christian church has the right to believe that and to pray for people and to counsel people with that possibility in mind. Uh, we are the church after all, um, and, uh, so, and we do have certain rights, I think, although I'm not, I'm not for sort of banding about the church's rights. We're more about serving than anything else. But, um, so I think it's, it's, uh, but on the other hand, I want to say it's, it's pretty rare that it happens, and particularly if it's nature uh, rather than nurture, uh, then it's very difficult for us to imagine that there would be change. And most of the situations that have led to shalom that I've observed are people who acknowledge they have same-sex desires and they acknowledge that that hasn't changed despite their holy pursuits. And so they have learned to live with that. They've learned to commit themselves to celibacy and they have intentionally moved into spiritual communities or been in relationship with one another. You know, it's really interesting. I've, I've got to be careful that I go too long here. But Genesis 1 includes singles. And uh, Ray Anderson, who was a, a theologian, psychologist at Fuller Seminary, always said that Genesis 1, in, even in Genesis 1, singles are meant to be familyed. He used the word as a verb. Singles should be in communities. That's why we as, exist as a church. To help, one of them is to help singles find community, or be in live in community, or live in community groups because it's very important. And in chapter one, there's no mention of marriage. Chapter two is when marriage is, is instituted. So even for single people, community is all important. They live as male and female in community with God and community with one another. And I want to say that's a crucial piece to finding health and holiness, even if that's you have that um, desire towards somebody of the that persons of the opposite, of the same sex, sorry. Yeah. How do we approach 
a situation where um, someone someone tells you that they have same-sex desires or that they have gender dysphoria and are perhaps looking for it to become transsexual or whatever. Um, how, what's the approach to that? I hope the approach has been modeled by what I've said today that begins with loving the person. And irrespective of what they say and their decision, one has to love the person. Because loving the person doesn't necessarily mean, doesn't mean affirming what they do. Um, and how, how to, it's always important to express these things in light of the goodness of God, in light of the gospel, the gospel orientation of God, why he says what he says. You know, if, you get, if, you're, if, you, if you're asked for your rationale, you know, why are you against um, my, my engaging in a same-sex relationship if I'm same-sex attracted? Why are you against that? Arguments um, like, because the Bible says so, are not going to go over too well. But what you are going to be able to say is um, that the, 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 if, if you really want to know, I'm, I, I, I want to share the context in which uh, God speaks about this. And this has to do with cre his creation and the fact that, that um, the, uh, the ideal of male and female together is, this is the issue I was talking about earlier, being. This is a being issue. It's not just a desire issue, it's a being issue. And in light of uh, who the triune, if you're talking to someone who's a Christian, in light of who the triune God is, in light of the image of God and what he intends for us, um, that you want to say, look, I can't help that in a fallen world you have developed same-sex desires. And that happens sometimes. And I don't reject you as a person because of that. But I do want to give you um, some counsel about what you do with that. Um, and to say that it, it doesn't permit you to have same-sex relations at, at, from a Christian perspective. And that I want to do everything I can to help you be in a community where you can dissipate these feelings, where you can handle these feelings, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's yeah, it, it's partly related to what I said at the beginning, that we welcome everybody, but we bring them to the center, who is Jesus. And we can't apologize for that. The second part of the question was, uh, yeah, in a no, more in a non-Christian context. Uh, yes, it, there was um, yes approaching uh, colleagues or yeah, neighbors, right, uh, right, who don't hold our faith. Yes, uh, and they bring up these issues. So, uh, how do you kind of have a conversation? Yeah, yeah, and and it's very difficult. I mean, to talk to a, a non-Christian about the Trinity, for example, could be challenging. But um, at the same time, I think there are ways ahead. And, and, and again, communicate in a spirit of love, in a spirit of the reason that God uh, precludes certain sexual behaviors relates to shalom and the shalom of the human race. You know, for one thing, I'm, I'm against same-sex uh, marriage and same-sex uh, same um, acts because the word of God is very clear that they're not right and in light of the image of God and the triune God, et cetera. But I also believe that the reason they're not right is that same-sex marriages cannot lead to procreation. That's an important part of Genesis 1 and 2 in terms of what sex is for, what marriage is for. If it can't lead to procreation, can you imagine if all there was in the world would be same-sex marriages, there would be no procreation. That's why I don't think it's in keeping with shalom. It's not in keeping with the flourishing of the human race. In fact, it works against the human race. 
at least there's the possibility of procreation in a heterosexual marriage. That's, I guess, the difference. You know, so people can make a decision. I won't have, well, I won't have children, and that, and that is their decision, I suppose. Yeah, I'm not sure I would go that far, but I would say that the difference is there is no possibility within any homosexual marriage of there being procreation, and that's what makes it kind of disordered. It's not part of the order. Uh, if a couple are, so, so if you have an um, opposite-sex marriage, um, at least it's a possibility, and um, I mean, I, I, I have friends who've decided not to have children. I don't sit in judgment on them, but I just know in terms of God's overall plan for the human race, the intention was that there would be procreation through heterose heterosexual marriage. Because my understanding of Christian schools is they're, they're discussing it a lot right now. Um, so I'm not sure that they're not allowed to. It's much more restricted in a non-Christian school. Um, I think I was giving the same talk at another similar talk I was at, at my own church, Peace Portal Alliance Church, uh, a few months ago. And one of the parents, who was a, he was a single parent, um, a, ma a male single parent, who described how his dad, his brother, his sorry, his son had come home from school, and his son had, ex and ex had expressed an opinion about something, not necessarily even related to the sexual issues, and his teacher had said that that was way too male. The l the level of assertion that you exercised was way too male, and you got to curb that uh, that maleness in you. And I, I was like, well, he didn't know what to do with that one. So there's, yeah, within the, within, the, within the school system right now, it's very difficult to have this conversation in terms of non-Christian schools. And, um, you know, I, there's also, I think it's important for me to mention this as well. Uh, one of the theologians that I read a lot, his name is John Milbank. Uh, John Milbank is very difficult to understand. He takes delight in being difficult to understand because he's just an elitist. Um, but he said he's for, he's against same-sex marriage in the church, but he's for it in the world. Now, this, and this was his rationale. His rationale was, this is the church, marriage is sacramental, same-sex marriage is clearly wrong. It violates the Trinity, it violates the image of God, etc., etc. But he argued that since we live in a secular culture, um, that we should, that actually same-sex unions in the secular culture are in some sense an ethical good. By comparison with same-sex um, practices which, which tend to be very promiscuous. And he says it's a better value for them to actually be uh, in, not, he didn't call them marriages, he called them unions. I don't know what I think about that exactly. Because on the one hand, it, it sounds like, okay, this is the secular world and we can't have a voice in there. Um, I would rather say, this is what the church believes. And for reasons that we believe are shalom-oriented, it shouldn't happen in the world either. So shalom is an Old Testament word. Sorry for just assuming everybody knows what shalom is. But shalom is basically a sense not just of peace, but of well-being. And um, the ethical commands of God are not only motivated by his love, they have an outcome, which is shalom. And when we don't follow his ways, we find our society lacking shalom. To say that our society today lacks shalom is an understatement. We have no shalom. Um, so 
Yeah. Do you know what's really interesting? The Ten Commandments begin with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Covenant relationship. Therefore, the Ten Commandments, by the way, which are all repeated in the New Testament, they all are not, they're not ought-tos, they are get-tos because they lead to God's shalom. And so that's, that's the point I'm making here. So I don't know the numbers of people who are same-sex attracted in Canada. I have no idea. We don't have those stats. Oh, I'm sure we probably have the stats somewhere uh, that you could pursue. Um, but, you know, how many same-sex attracted people are actually interested in the Christian faith is another question. Sometimes they're not interested in the Christian faith because the church has shunned them. No hospitality whatsoever. And sometimes they are, they've got no time for the church because they have no time for the church and it's not on their radar. Um, you know, I, I, I've uh, known some same-sex people, same-sex same sex attractive people who have a hunger and thirst to be at the church but think they're not going to be accepted. Um, and so, yeah, there's just such a, such a variety of people in that regard. So I've no doubt that there might be a release of some kind of r relief or pleasure because um, they have come out, if you like. And, um, and obviously, I'm not going to say that um, I approve of their lifestyle in terms of where they go from there. But I can understand that they might have a sense of relief about that. Uh, my only concern would be, um, how do we pastor them before they got there? You know, how do we shepherd them? Um, were they free, and did they feel safe enough to come and say, look, I have, have same-sex attraction. Um, could you pray for me? Could you guide me? Could you disciple me? Um, but rather, it sounds like they're off on their own and isolated from the church, and therefore one, you know, one's not surprised that they feel um, that they've entered into a new... I mean... I mean, and related to this is the fact, I, mean, I think of Elton John, for example. Elton John went to a therapist who helped him realize he was gay. And uh, he would say that was the, you know, a, a great thing for him to come to, come to terms with that. It brought him self-understanding. And, and I accept that. Obviously, I don't, uh, you know, I don't affirm that he's now same-sex attracted. But I'm, I'm just saying there is this psychological dynamic of relief that I've come to terms with these desires within me. Um, and so I, so I get that, but it, it, uh, I, I would always question where they go from there and in terms of actually how much shalom that brings long term. I must confess that's not in my bailiwick. I haven't, uh, I haven't resourced that. I haven't thought about that. I'm not um, in that area of, of, of work, more for with, with adults. But I think um, I would just reinforce that one needs to talk about that because they're being talked at all the time around these issues with, um, with, 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 with force. And, and if, if you don't talk to them, they develop opinions that um, are either peer-related or teacher-related in ways that are um, often contrary to your own convictions. So don't not talk about it. Yeah, they're differentiated um, by being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Father and not Son. Son and not Father. Spirit and not Father and Son. But they're also differentiated in terms of what they do. So they, um, in terms of who they are in eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, but also in terms of what happened when God revealed himself in the person of Christ, 
what we sometimes call the economic trinity, um, is it's th they they have different functions. They they there's um, each is in the other, and they're all together in what they do. And yet, there's a very clear differentiation of function. So Ephesians chapter one, Paul Paul's magnificent um, section three to fourteen, where he says begins with the Father. What does the Father do? The Father elects. What does the Father do? The Father predestinates. What does the Son do? The Son redeems. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit is the earnest and seal. Um, so you see how they have different functions that 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 um, reveal their um, differentiation. Yes, it, it can do, um, but there are some fundamental physical differences is where we need to start. Is I think. No, nope, I don't think so. I, I, you know, one one could. Yeah, one, one can, I think there's a place for recognizing uh, there's, um, there are differences that are uh, related to kind of, um, yeah, all, all, I mean, I, I marvel at male-female differences all the time. That we're, we're not exactly the same. We're exactly the same in terms of we are both human, and that there are, there are definite differences um, of... Um, I mean, I, I want to say, for example, um, our, our, the way in which we handle our emotions or our emotional uh, awareness. Um, I'm just saying, in general, there is a, there's a difference. But I don't want to push that too far because there are certain men who may have the same, the same things. But the, the, the main thing is that the physical, and with that does go the physiological, so there are differences in that regard. But it's important to stress that they are equal. They're not. They're different, but equal. Um, and that, uh, yeah, I think that's an important dimension. They're equal in essence. They may. They may have differentiating functions, but I want to be really careful there that we don't read into things. So, for example, Ephesians chapter five. How does that passage begin? S mutually submitting to one another, submitting mutually to one another in the fear of God. Before Paul gets into into any kind of role. He first of all says there's a mutual submission to one another. So there's no, there's no. Uh, so then he'll talk about the fact that the the husband uh, is given some some a function as head, but head must not be misinterpreted as ruler. Headship, if Jesus is the one we follow, is about servanthood, and Paul goes on to say that that whatever that headship is, it's about. Just as Jesus died on the cross for his church, that's what you do for your spouse. So I want to get away from the idea that there's a boss in marriage. There isn't a boss. The word boss is never used. Um, and so uh, there, is, there, are, there are some differentiating functions, I think, within the home and within the church. But, um, yeah, it's probably enough to say that for now. Are the feelings of transgenderism in reality making a statement that God made a mistake in making me the way I am? I want to just say no. We live in a fallen world, and that's the answer. God is not the origin of confusion. Uh, he doesn't make mistakes. He does allow the world to be itself, and sometimes things go wrong in ways that are not, uh, are not happy for us. But I'm really uncomfortable saying um, this is the way I am because God made me this way or, or whatever. It's much, it's much more complicated than that. We live in a fallen world. Things happen. And um, if it's not that, uh, there are other issues that happen um, in, our, in our lives that are 
less than ideal, and uh, we don't blame God for those, so I wouldn't uh, blame God for those things. Right, sir. Okay. Um, I want to thank Ross because if you were the one standing up here trying to answer all those questions, I think you would know the nature of difficulty of trying to think on your feet and be thoughtful and reflective and understand and, and reply. So um, thank you, Ross. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate welcome. that. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things before we leave. And just like I was saying there, I think that, you know, we all do have further questions and it takes more than one day of talking about this to try to process this and learn more and understand. So I want to put you on to a few of the resources that I've come across. My wife and I have been looking at this for a while and um, trying to learn for ourselves. Um, I have a list up here of the resources that I'm going to show you that you could take this home and buy on Amazon. So I didn't buy them and going to sell them to you. Just buy them yourself. Okay. Uh, I put the prices there as well so you can check them out. The first book I'm going to... Uh, get you to consider purchasing is Ross's book that he forgot to bring along. So this one's called Pastoral Theology. In here is a chapter that's dedicated to sexual ethics, which is what he's been referencing um, this morning. You re this was the one you were referencing, correct, Ross? Yeah. The uh, pastoral ethics one. There's also a um, theological ethics one. So there's two that sound similar, pastoral ethics. You can check that one out online. Um, Chris, um, pardon me, Preston Sprinkle wrote this book, uh, people to be loved, why homosexuality is not just an issue. And this uh, is a very well-written book to help you understand both the Word of God. He took an honest look at the questions that were being, or I mean, the um, what Scripture had to say about, in particular, same-sex attraction and homosexuality. But he also engaged from a cultural level of, well, how do we have that conversation? And so he really enters into that in a very uh, appropriate way that I think is helpful. Um, probably one of the favorite authors that Anne and I have come across lately is Sam Alberry, who is a same-sex attracted pastor who did not want this at all, but he has become a public speaking person on this. He's an insider. He's committed to a life of celibacy, and, and a lot of us wonder, well, how do you do that? He speaks to how to do that. He speaks about what helps him as a same-sex attracted person who's committed to God's plan and design and what helps him. And I think that you would find this, this is for the men in the crowd because it's only a hundred pages long. So you could read that. It's called, Is God Anti-Gay? It's got an updated and abridged version. So the, the cover doesn't look like that when you go on to Amazon. He's also written other books on singleness, which are really helpful as well. And also about um, just uh, kind of like, why does God care who I sleep with? That's the title of one of his books. But I think he, in a very sensitive way and a culturally relevant way, enters into those kinds of questions and has a very thoughtful response. So that's Sam Albury. All of that is on this sheet of paper. And then I promoted a year ago when we did the Messy Grace, Messy Truth series. Um, this is a pastor as well. His name is Caleb uh, Coltenbach, but Caleb grew up with two moms. And, uh, and then eventually he found out later in his uh, late teen years that he found out that his dad was also having homosexual relations. He just didn't know that his dad was homosexual while he was being raised. But he was raised by two moms, lesbians. And so he shares his story and then he comes to faith in Christ. And so he always says, my coming out to my parents was telling them that I'm a Christian. And, uh, and he thoughtfully helps the church understand how to engage in this and how to be that um, the grace and truth presence, the, the love and justice type idea of the nature of God. So those are good. And then the last one that we've come across recently is a, a man, Christopher Yuan, who this is the story of his journey, which um, as well, he is a Christian who is same-sex attracted. 
and uh, came to a place of committing himself to a life of celibacy as well. And so he has uh, written this book about his, his own personal journey, but then he goes on to write about um, other things that I've highlighted here. Uh, his book is called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and, Re and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. And the reason why I think that you know, these two authors that I'm highlighting that are same-sex attracted is these are people on the inside who I believe as insiders have a way of being able to share with us what it's like and how they're navigating and journeying through this. I want to learn from people who understand this from the inside and, and to help guide us forward. And so those are two good resources. I've put on there YouTube links because, of course, these days you can always just go watch them on YouTube. And I put those links there that if you want to go and watch them on YouTube, you can as well. And, of course, from there, then you can get further resources if you want. Um, so this is on the table. I invite you to take one. And, um, and also, if you're interested in Ross's book, make sure you pick that up as well. I just want to highlight that because you forgot 20 of your books in your office and too bad. <laughs> you know what? I, if, if you were to start with one, I would start with the Sam Albury is God anti-gay. He, in a very succinct manner, covers a lot of territory. Uh, he's speaking as an insider. He, is, um, he, he deals with the biblical passages as well as the cultural questions. And so I think in a fairly easy read, he's a good one. So if you had to start with one, that, that would be my recommendation. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, and, I, and I pray that this leads to more engaging conversations. I know this is not the last and this hasn't answered all our questions and it might not be satisfactory. That's fine. It's, it's stirring our hearts to say, then let's continue to read and learn and study and listen to one another and uh, seek God first and foremost in our lives. So let me pray, and then we'll close. Father, thank you for your grace in each of our lives. As we've just heard tonight, that you are a God who pursues us. You are a God who cares about who we are, and you know that we live in a broken world, and you know our level of brokenness. And so no one is disqualified from the gospel. Each and every one of us are on a journey, and as we set our sights toward you, might we find that we're weighing into that water, that imagery at our ankle deep, and then our knee deep, and chest deep, until we're swimming in you. So Lord, be the one who, um, who quenches our true thirst and desire. And may we get things right from knowing that first and foremost in our life. So we commit ourselves to you as we walk this journey of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Discipleship Podcast. For more information about our church, visit sardisfellowship.com.